This is how we overcome it. Moving on, keep it up. Reaching to the world. Arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice. Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So, friends, we have been in this summer series called Things That Aren't in the Bible, But We Think That They Should Be or Are. Um, so, so far, we have talked about such phrases as God won't give you any more than you can handle, or this too shall pass, or money is the root of all evil. So we are concluding this series, at least for now, with today's episode. But what are we going to talk about today, Erica? So today we are talking about, I'm going to give it two different titles, The Sinner's Prayer and or Accepting Jesus Into Your Heart. And how those have often, they, they feel like they're they're in scripture, they they. Of, of all these phrases, of all these things we've talked about over the last five weeks, I think this one feels the most like, yeah, this is definitely in scripture. And it is kind of. And yeah. But not exactly. <laughs> right. Well, and maybe this is a place for us to do a little bit of fleshing out of terms of like, because none of us are here to say we're anti-Jesus or anti-having a relationship with Jesus right. or anti-prayer or anti-admitting that we are sinners. There's none of those things. And we're not trying to say the Bible is anti any of those things. But mm -hmm. maybe this is a place to talk about how the language of accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior almost becomes code language or like Christian jargon. And that mm -hmm. jargon never appears in the Bible. And whatever theology spins out of that isn't rooted necessarily in a biblical passage, even if there are things that are close or similar. So maybe we should start like we've done in previous episodes when we've talked about a phrase is start with when people hear this, like what do people mean or what what do you hear this phrase, either of these phrases? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Have you accepted Jesus? How does that get used in contemporary religious culture? So it, it's, I most often say it, you know, as somebody who's worked at church camp, that's usually something that gets brought up, you know, for us, it was usually like Thursday night, you know, we'd have a big all camp chapel and there'd be an altar call and, you know, and it, you have the opportunity to accept Jesus into your heart, to pray the sinner's prayer. Um, you know, it's a, it's one of those, when you get talking about conversion and like, are you a Christian? Aren't you a Christian? Like, when did you say the sinner's prayer? And where were you? And what were you doing? Um, kind of idea and not just yeah. that like for myself i can't pinpoint a day or time or a place yeah that yeah. you know i prayed the sinner's prayer um yeah. but that doesn't mean i don't have a relationship with jesus right it right. just means i can't pinpoint a specific time and place and what i was wearing you know that that's such a helpful way of framing it is that often when this language gets used in american religion it sort of comes with the baggage of to be an authentic Christian, there must have been a moment where, as an adult of being of sound mind and body, you consciously chose to invite Jesus in to become your Savior and Lord. Previously, he wasn't, and now he was, and you can point mm -hmm. to that moment. And if you don't have that kind of a story, you don't really know for sure that you are a Christian. And sometimes that's the baggage that comes along with this, right? Yeah. And yeah. I, although, I'm not sure that you have to be an adult. 
Okay. I mean, but like there's some points in, in yeah. life where if you, if you're too young, if you're a three-year-old or you're a little kid, like, you know, they smile and, you know, isn't that cute? But no, you got to mean it when you are, and sometimes the language of at the age of accountability or something like that. But mm-hmm. there's a point at which it's real and it's serious. Yeah. And, and I'm mostly, I'm pushing back on it a little bit just because um, I grew up with Southern Baptist grandparents uh-huh. and they loved this whole concept of you have like they 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 loved evangelism and talking to people about their own faith journey and like trying to convert people to to christianity and to accept jesus christ as your personal lord and savior and so i I very much grew up with those that kind of language and i remember being pretty small i don't know how old i was um, but I was, I remember playing in this very specific part of their house where I, I played a lot and thinking to myself, have I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and savior? I don't remember. So I'm going to go ahead quickly, like ask Jesus to be in my heart. Like that's all I said. And because I'm so young, I'm going to probably forget and I'm going to have to do this again, but that's okay. I'll do it again later if I need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, a few years later, I did accept an altar call and I think we should probably go back and talk about that in a minute yeah. mm-hmm. of what an altar call is but i went up to an altar call to pray the sinner's prayer with somebody else like somebody helped lead it for me or whatever and they gave me a bible um so like those were two very specific moments but yeah. like that was definitely part of the culture of my family um and i was i was young i was under the age of what is considered the age of reason or the age of accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a perfectly acceptable thing. Yeah. And so again, like the, the the emphasis and traditions that want to focus on this is that it's important for each individual person that there be a moment that, again, you can tell the story about later on than when this is when it happened and you took it seriously and that sometimes the language is it needs to be words pretty much like this and that it's that acknowledging of i'm a sinner and i believe these facts about you jesus and i invite you into my heart and that that's what begins our relationship with jesus so that's some of the baggage that comes along with this way of of talking and thinking should we okay i was gonna say that often happens at what sarah and i both mentioned as an altar call okay and sarah you mean you said and rightly so we need to kind of unpack what that is because not everybody knows um, and for me, the way I see an altar call is usually there is a sermon, um, which is talking about salvation and the fact that we are sinners and that we need a savior and, and those kind of things. And usually at the end of that, then there is an invitation to come up to an altar like space, um, or up to the front of wherever you're at. And then you pray what a lot of folks consider to be the sinner's prayer, mm-hmm. um, which has variations, you know, as short as, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, to something a lot longer. And like, I invite you into my heart, Jesus, and I, you know, I invite right. you to be my Lord and Savior. But something along those lines is what I yeah. consider, you know, typically to be an altar call. Yeah. Yeah. And there's usually a whole bunch of people who have been already like arranged before mm-hmm. the service by the preacher to be up front to receive all these people yeah. who are going to come forward. So then that way you have somebody who you can talk to individually mm-hmm. about, and they, they know the words to whatever version of the sinner's prayer they wanted to use. They can help you. They can like, 
again, give you a Bible so that you have the word of God now in your hands to read. Cause that's a big part of, mm-hmm. um, especially this particular strand of Christianity where it's, you know, important that you then continue to grow in your faith journey, which I think is super valid. Right. Um, like that's, yeah, like do that, read, read the Bible. Um, so yeah, it's, there's usually somebody there though to walk you through it and you're not just like mm-hmm. going up front kneeling in front of the altar by yourself and like no it's done it's done in community yeah so sometimes it's that like you know with every eye closed and every head bowed like you know if you want to accept jesus as your savior put your hand up oh i see that hand i see that hand mm-hmm. yeah you know, i've seen that one too which um i don't know which one frustrates me more some days <laughs> So it, it sounds like um, the, the, there are parts of this approach to Christian initiation, maybe we'll say, that we're all nodding our heads going, yeah, it's important to have a meaningful mm-hmm. personal relationship with Jesus. It's important to acknowledge that we are sinners, and it is important to have other people walk us through that. Um, where are there places that we might go, yellow flags or red flags? Where are there ways that this goes, hold on, this is... Uh, we, we've we've left the the requirements of scripture or or where this this gets abused or goes beyond the the what the bible says or something like that as i mentioned earlier and um the fact that for me this is the issue for me mm-hmm. because this is not the tradition i come out of that you need to know exactly when you said that prayer mm-hmm. and that you've had to say something along those lines and not just that your relationship with Jesus can kind of evolve over time. Yeah. Uh, I can't pinpoint a day or a time when I didn't know Jesus. Yeah. And then when I did know Jesus, I grew up in the church. I was raised in the church. It was probably sometime in elementary school. Probably my Sunday school teacher led us through some sort of, you know, sinner's prayer kind of thing. But I can't tell you a day or a time. Okay. Um, and And so... A lot of people will say that, well, then are you really a Christian? Right. If you can't pinpoint when. So maybe this is one of those here be dragons kind of things that like, it's fine mm-hmm. to say I have a personal relationship with you. and it's fine. If you can say, here's when it became real to me. I remember the moment, yeah. but if that crosses the line into the only people who are authentic Christians are people who've got a story like that there, we've headed into, this is not the way the Bible talks because mm-hmm. in fact, to be honest, Nobody anywhere in the entire Bible ever uses the phrase, I accept you, Jesus, as my personal Lord and Savior. The notion of a personal Lord is almost a contradiction in terms of the New Testament, because Lord is not something you run for or choose like it's public office. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes this is one of my bugaboos is that like, of course, Americans who live in a consumerist democratic society hear the phrase Jesus Lord and think, well, I have to pick you. I mean, it's like that scene in um, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, where King Arthur comes by and like, well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for king. That's not how this works. Right. Right. That to call Jesus Lord wasn't to say I picked you for Lord. It is to acknowledge something that is true, whether I like it or not. And that choosing Jesus as savior almost makes it sound like he didn't do the saving already. Whereas like, again, the New Testament mm-hmm. seems to say like at the cross, this this fantastic salvific event happens. And it's not like Jesus hasn't saved already. Like, nope, the action of the cross is a done deal. That's accomplished. Um, so I get like it, to me, like there there is other baggage that comes along with even that personal Lord and Savior language. Yeah. So so for me, I I did the 
the altar call when I was like eight or nine. Like it was, I was still in elementary school and it, it was one of those things where it was my actions Mm-hmm. That was being lifted up as the righteous thing. Yeah. Um, that I remember my grandparents um making a pretty big deal about this this thing that I did mm-hmm. and the choices that I was making and how I was turning over a new leaf that I have been made clean because of my righteousness and that I was like now my whole life was going to be transformed because I was going to be walking this path that God has put me on and that I like had accepted this path. And in a lot of ways, I felt really stiff as a child and I didn't have language for this as a kid, but I felt like I couldn't mess up Mm. because Mm -hmm. messing up would jeopardize this relationship that I had with God. And I I felt almost like locked into place and that I couldn't sin because I'd already prayed the sinner's prayer. I didn't want to backslide. Mm -hmm. Um, And turns out that that, um, you know, now I have to be in therapy because of, (laughs) you know, and, and kind of unpack some of this baggage from my childhood of how I like that, that impacted me for the longest time. And then so when I was 11 and my family joined the Lutheran church and my pastor found out that I had that my brother and I, we hadn't been baptized and he like asked, Hey, do you want to be baptized? And I, I remember saying like being really excited because it was another step on, you know, this journey with God and my, my Southern Baptist grandparents were going to be my godparents and they they were they were fine with it like but they they seem to be treated this treating this as a formality of like this is just how you join the church and i remember my pastor my very lutheran pastor trying to emphasize to 11 year old me of this is god's action right this is god claiming you and god cleansing you and that this is a not just a one-time thing Mm-hmm. But a forever thing God has is claiming you as a child of God. And that gave me such a breath of freedom and fresh air of feeling not quite so trapped because yeah. it was no longer my actions, but it was God's action that was important here. Yep. Um, that, uh, yeah, I was going to sin and mess up because I was a kid, because I was right. a person right. and I didn't have to be quite so rigid. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how often the, one of the other pieces of baggage that comes with that personal Lord and Savior approach is it tends to suit stories of great contrast with the before and after, you know, that I once was lost, but mm-hmm. now I'm found was blind. But now I see that like, it becomes real tempting to recast your whole life story as well, before I prayed the sinner's prayer, I was a terrible rotten jerk. And I was mean to everybody. And I, you know, drank and smoked and did all these bad things. And now I'm nothing but good rather than no, I wasn't a, a wretch, but I mean, like, you know, sinner, but also still am a sin. I mean, like, and again, this is sort of our I'll I'll own for at least you and my you and me, Sarah, that our Lutheranness has sort of that it's less about you were all rotten and now you're all good and more about I ah, I'm a mess before and I'm a mess now, but Jesus is working on me. Um, mm-hmm. but also I don't have to 
heighten the contrast and pretend that everything before was terrible and everything after it is all you know sunshine and rainbows but both i mean the, and i keep screwing up and that i i think it's that idea of is it possible that god's love was operative in my life before i was aware of it or does god wait until i was aware of it first i guess i even wonder whether that suggests underneath these different ways of talking about our relationship with god are underlying metaphors about what kind of love we're talking about. Like when you think about somebody falling in love in a romantic way, often you can remember the moment you first laid eyes on them or when you knew it was real or something like that. And that to some degree, yeah, you choose that. You choose to uh, pursue a relationship with them, to date them, to marry them, that kind of thing. But when I think about say family, like my parents or things like that, um, I can't remember a time when I wasn't in that household of those people loving me. And it, just because I can't point to a moment when I said I want to be in this family doesn't mean that I wasn't. But mm -hmm. no, it's possible to have been loved into being that before you were even aware of it, love claimed you. And maybe this gets at that there's different underlying metaphors we have about what the Christian faith is. Is it more like a romance where you fought Jesus from across a crowded room and butterflies fill your stomach and you say the sinner's prayer? Or is it more like discovering you've been claimed to be a part of a family before you were even aware of it. And that love then follows you through. And yeah, as you get older, there comes a point where in adulthood you say, do I want to continue being in this family or not? But that it can have begun even without your awareness. I think that's an important piece to lift up. Are there other maybe possible uh, downsides or red flags or dragon areas? If we lean too hard on the, did you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and savior? Are there other places that this could present trouble down the road? I am always fearful of accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that that faith isn't community-based enough. Mm -hmm. It's easy for it to be just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else. You mean. Right, 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 right. Like, I... And, and I don't want people to hear me and hear that I think that it's not important to have a personal relationship with God because mm -hmm. that's not the case. I, I do very much think that you have your own personal discipleship and faith devotion life to attend to. Yes. But I also think that religion, spirituality, all of those things are also community based. Um, when I teach communion classes to confirmation students or to children about ready to get first communion or whatever. I like to emphasize that the when when we are being told, you know, this is the body and blood of Christ given for you, that that you is both singular and plural. And I think it's important to keep both of those things in our minds because, yes, God forgives you, loves you, as in you singular, you individual. But also it's important to remember that Jesus is saying that not just to you, but to the whole world. Mm -hmm. Because I think that we need to recognize the other person as also a beloved child of God. That um, that that's that it is true for every single person that you meet on this planet and that Jesus died also for them and not just for you. And it's a, at least for me, that's a very humbling experience of knowing that I am not the most beloved person, that I am not the most special person, that God also loves 
that person over there and that person and even that person that I really can't stand and I can't pinpoint why God also loves that person. And along that same bent, Sarah, that community, I think when we focus just on that me and Jesus relationship, that can lead us to to pray and ask for things that are very self-focused, irregardless of what it might do to somebody else. Now, thankfully, we serve a God who is aware of that and doesn't always answer those prayers the way we would like them to be answered. And will tell us no, because he knows it's self-centered and it's going, you know, if we get this, it could hurt someone else. Um, but, you know, if we're just focused on, okay, it's me and Jesus, well, then I can ask for whatever I want. And Jesus has to grant it to me. And then we get mad when we don't get that. Not realizing that maybe the reason that Jesus didn't give us what we asked for is because to give us this means somebody else gets hurt in that process. Yes. I, I also think that it's pretty biblical that we live in worship in communities mm-hmm. and not just all of us on our own all the mm-hmm. time. Like it's a, like worship has always really meant to be a community action. I even think that the language of savior as it's used throughout the biblical witness almost always has this sort of corporate sense of the God who steps in to save collectively the people, you know, like, so that it, 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 like when you think about God depicted as the great redeemer of ancient Israel, the one who delivered them through the sea, you know, like there's not like Moses taking tickets at the entrance of the Red Sea going, have you professed that you believe in Yahweh? But like collectively we were all enslaved and now we are collectively Mm -hmm. set free. And that the New Testament uses that same kind of imagery to talk about this great act of saving that God has done in Jesus is corporate. And that whatever it means to be saved, it isn't about plucking up individuals to take them to some VIP room in the afterlife, but ultimately is about new creation, which is corporate, which is about us together, not just me. I guess I think that's one of the other places that I get nervous about abuse of this kind of individual, hyper-individualistic personal Lord and Savior stuff is it ends up almost making like a fetish out of what me and Jesus have is better than anybody else has. You know, that like Mm -hmm. me and Jesus, I'm so close with Jesus and that almost fosters a competition that absolutely does not need to be there. I think about, and I don't mean to belittle anybody who loves this dear hymn, because I know lots of people love the hymn in the garden, you know, I come to the garden alone, all the dew is Mm -hmm. still on the roses, right? And the refrain that keeps coming back, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Like, there's like, it's it's twist at the end of like, instead of just me and Jesus, I'm happy, it's more like, what me and Jesus got is better than what anybody else has. And like, it just feels like, why did that, why, why do we need that at the end? That feels like now you've made it a competition. Now you've made it exclusive that it's me and Jesus and whatever you have with Jesus isn't nearly as good as what I've got with him. Um, and like nowhere do you see that in the scriptures. Nowhere do you see people one-upping each other. Uh, no, and, and anytime you get any hint of that among the disciples, Jesus smacks down the person who wants the number one and number two spot and goes, mm-hmm. no, that's not how we do this. If you want to be number one, you got to be the lowest, right? Instead of trying to be buddy-buddy. And I guess it, it, that's one of those things that gets my um, Lutheran spider sense tingling. Is that like, whoa, why, are we, why is this a competition of affection? And I guess if that's the milieu that we're used to, and that like, it infects all sorts of Christianity, even um, branches that have a theological tradition of 
putting guardrails up against that. Like it's easy not to even notice. Yeah. How did this, how did I get to be so competitive with my faith that it's me and Jesus compared to, you know, you and your walk with Jesus. We don't even realize how hyper individualized it's become rather than we're in this together. And Jesus loving you does not have to be a threat to Jesus loving me, but man, how easy it Mm -hmm. is to play on our insecurities that way. I think that Jesus loving you versus Jesus loving me, we, we treat the love of Jesus and of God as a pie yeah. That, you know, if I get a bigger piece, then that, you know, or somebody right. else gets a bigger piece, that means I right. get a smaller piece. And that's right. not how the love of God works and the love of Jesus works. Um, but we're so used to that idea that, you know, there's only so much that can go around. Yeah. Right. That if somebody else gets more than I do, then, you know, right. we can never all have the same amount. Right, right, right. And again, if you're picturing salvation is a commodity, then you're almost mm-hmm. stuck with thinking that way rather than salvation is this corporate reality of we used to be enslaved and now we are mm-hmm. set free. We used to be in bondage to Pharaoh or in uh, captivity to sin and death. And now we are set free corporately. That doesn't have to be um, zero sum. It doesn't have to be, well, if good mm-hmm. happened to you. It, it sucks out some of the good for me because it's a corporate reality. And that's one of the things I think that especially American Christians have a hard time wrapping their brains around. That God approaches us and treats us and, and works with us in community, not just as me and Jesus one-on-one. I mean, there's a reason that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, yeah. not my Father. Um, yeah, and why in all of Paul's letters, almost everywhere it's always our lord jesus never mm-hmm. my lord jesus you know mm-hmm. um, that it's always understood in the corporate sense now maybe a, a, just to play devil's advocate for a moment or to make sure we're not uh, avoiding dragons on the other side if all we have was the sort of a uh, corporate sense and no sense of this is personal to me are there dangers there are there ways that we can go awry there that we maybe need to hold on to yeah, this is a personal relationship, if even if it's not private. Are there dangers? I think absolutely. Okay. Like yeah. I think that it is important for us also also to attend to our own discipleship and mm-hmm. personal piety and our devotional life. Like those are all things within the realm that we do have some say in like uh if all i'm doing is relying on the corporate community worship things i i think you're missing out on some opportunity um opportunity to grow in your own faith life and again i don't think that the only way that you can grow is by doing some personal private things all by yourself like Certainly not. Like there are Bible studies that are like that you can do with a group. There are um, when we were in seminary, my spouse really liked to go to um, praying the hours with a bunch of other students. So like there were certain times of the day, like morning, afternoon, evening, nighttime that they would gather and have this short little prayer service that had like certain prayers and readings assigned. And so, but that was a way that he deepened his own spiritual life and grew in seminary. And it wasn't done by himself, but he did make the initiative 
to go and to make that a priority, even when I would sometimes wish even out loud that he didn't because I wanted to spend time with him and not have him go and our date slightly early so that he could go to this prayer service that he wanted to go to. But that was how he chose to grow his faith life while in seminary. Um, so we can choose to do some of those things so that we aren't just kind of static and standing still in our faith journeys. And I think if our faith is only at the corporate level, it's easy to ride the coattails of others. Okay. Rather than developing and deepening our own relationship. Um, you know, Sunday morning is a time to get us ready for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you just come, I'm not sure if I like this analogy, but I I came across it recently about like Sunday mornings the huddle, yeah, you know, and for for the football game or whatever, um, uh, to get you ready to go out and back into playing the game. It you know, it's not a spectator sport. Yeah, you know, it's something that we're supposed to be active in. And it's not the best analogy. I get it, um, but a lot of people just treat it like, okay, I'm going to come Sunday morning mark it off my okay i did my thing and now i can go and do whatever and that has a way of like there was a whole strand of medieval theology where what it was to be a christian was you went to mass and like that was where Mm -hmm. the stuff that god cared about in the world was that sacraments had to be offered and prayers had it that's where god's business was done and that was it and if we're not convinced that that model is accurate but in fact god cares about everything then yeah that huddle metaphor is more helpful that it's if you are playing football, it's helpful to be connected with the other teammates to know what are we, what play are we running right now? But you don't stop before you run the play. You you then run the play, and yeah. that similarly we get together with this. Okay, well, I got recentered about who I am and whose I am and how I live in the world. Good. Now I will go and live in the world as mm-hmm. that person. To me, that that points at another historic problem of what happens when everything is left at that corporate level for centuries in what they called Christendom. If you were a citizen of the Holy Roman Empire or a citizen of a kingdom that called itself Christian, by birth yep. you were uh, Christian, and therefore you had there was no obligation that you actually learned anything about following the way of Jesus. It was you lived in a Christian land, you were a Christian, but you could be a total jerk to everybody else because you were nominally a Christian because the water ceremony had sprinkled water over you, that kind of thing. Um, and then you ended up with there. There's that damning line of Kierkegaards who said in his uh, 1800s uh, Danish context, I live in a land where everyone is a Christian and no one is a Christian. I mean, like that awareness, mm-hmm. you could be in a culture that nominally used all the trappings of it, um, but nobody actually took Jesus seriously or living this seriously. And maybe there are those warnings of like, don't let this just be a formality or a cultural thing. Um, but if, if it's real, it's going to need to affect my actual life, my real choices. And not just like you say, that sort of coattails of so-and-so that I know used to take me to church and I just, I'm on, I'm on the list. It's it's less Mm -hmm. about a list and more about a life. So even though it's sometimes cliche when people say that old line, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. There's something to that, right? I mean, like, and that doesn't need to be anti-religion either. There's there's reason for ritual and corporate life and things that we do together that the word for that is religion, but not to treat it like that's all it is. There needs to be this living connection with the living God. I want to say to both of you how thankful I am that in our conversations this series even when we start with something that we go like, this is totally not in the Bible at all, or oh, this is actually close. Like we've landed in a place of nuance. And I, I hope that's valuable for folks who are listening in our conversations. 
that it's not like we're, oh, this is t terrible or there's no reason for this or this is totally awesome, but like there's nuance and it's there be dragons, but also here's the reason why this is why this is a popular thought. Um, and I hope that's something that as we continue on to new series uh, moving on that uh, will be something valuable for folks who are listening. So speaking of new series, we invite you to join us next time where we'll be launching a brand new series or at least a new edition of something like a series here on Crazy Faith Talk. <laughs> Bye. Bye.